Hello and welcome to Not Even Mad, a show where we are at times intemperate, obviously obstreperous, and invariably incredulous, but we're not even mad. We are three people who don't always agree. In fact, that makes for interesting listening when we don't. Today, we speak of narratives around mass shootings, the likelihood of Joe Biden's 2024 bid, and the man with a space telescope named after him goes to cancel court. We do vow to relish the discourse because we are not even mad. So I say we, or we specifically, we've got Jamie Kerchick, a columnist for Tablet Magazine and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Now, Jamie, I know you don't like soccer, but you do like beating Iran. Was it worth having to play soccer to do so? Uh, I'd rather beat them on the battlefield than in the football <laughs> pitch. So take that as you will. <laughs> Yes, just stick to your guns in all all yes, forms. Literally. Virginia Heffernan writes for Wired, has her own substack called Magic and Loss, and she had a rooting interest in the trial and conviction of Stuart Rhodes. What's your personal interaction with the uh, oh, monocular Mr. Rhodes? Boy, we have a past. Uh, Stuart Rhodes in 2007 was running the digital campaign and I guess the rest of the campaign for Ron Paul, Rand Paul's libertarian uh, and nutjob father. And I wrote something for the New York Times in, a, in a, one of its early blogs about Ron Paul having taken some money from the head of a neo-Nazi organization. I got a couple of the facts wrong, but that none of that had anything to do with the fact that I got piled on by uh, by Stuart Rhodes's minions on the Ron Paul campaign. Uh, death threats, rape threats. They wouldn't end. They broke the New York Times site because they came in, remember these, in the comments section, mm -hmm. not on Twitter in those days. Um, and the New York Times ended up capitulating and taking the piece off the site. It can only be found in Internet Archive now. Um, and uh, I've found it since. It's a relatively um, inoffensive piece of reporting. I did get wrong this fact, I want to correct it for all time. Ron Paul did not take money from Stormfront. The check was made out from Don Black, then the president of Stormfront. I regret the error. But Stuart Rhodes showed his colors. We knew in plain sight that the guy was uh, white supremacy curious and capable of online violence that has now tilted into uh, real violence in the form of January 6th. So I'm happy to see him convicted of seditious conspiracy. This has been not even mad sedition edition. Uh, I, <laughs> I back you up on that one. And as far as Iran goes, I got three words, fatwa on flopping. Okay, let's go <laughs> to the uniquely joyful American triumph on the soccer pitch to a regular American tragedy. Jamie, I task you with taking us to topic number one. The Saturday before Thanksgiving, a 22-year-old individual named Anderson Lee Aldrich walked into the Q Club, a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs, Colorado, where he unleashed a long rifle and opened fire. He managed to kill five people and wound some 25 more before being subdued by a group of patrons. Here is Ben Collins, an MSNBC reporter who covers online disinformation, responding to the attack. I am trying to thread this needle here. I'm trying to say that this is happening. This targeted stuff has real life impacts. They say in the internet it has real life impacts. And I'm going to fail, by the way. I'm going to 
you know, freak out because it's happening. Because I wake, I wake up and I see that there are five dead bodies. But I think we have to have a come to Jesus moment here uh, as reporters. Are we more afraid of being on Breitbart for saying that trans people deserve to be alive? Or are we more afraid of the dead people? Because I'm more afraid of the dead people. I don't want five, I don't want to wake up on a Sunday and see that all of these headlines came to fruition. Collins was hardly alone in pinning the blame for this tragedy on conservatives. Within minutes of news breaking about a shooting at a gay club, a chorus of online progressives were busily pronouncing that anyone who questions the propriety of teaching gender theory to elementary school kids had blood on their hands. Since Collins issued that display of self-righteous indignation, a complication has emerged for his narrative, however. Aldrich's lawyers announced that their client identifies as non-binary and insists on being referred to with they, them pronouns. This would seem to put something of a dent in the narrative that Aldrich was inspired by hatred of the LGBTQIA plus community, and that Aldrich, at least according to their self-identification, is a part of said community. Aldrich has not released a statement, though emerging details about his past provide some clues as to what might have led him to do what he did about 10 days ago. As is the case with so many mass shooters, he had a troubled childhood. His mother had serious mental health issues, and he was placed in the care of his grandmother. And his father, a former pornographic film actor, was arrested for illegally importing marijuana. Last year, Aldrich's mom called the police, uh, terrified that her son was threatening to harm her with a homemade bomb. Now, we had raised the possibility of discussing this tragedy uh, for last week's episode of Not Even Mad, but I demurred because I was hesitant to discuss a mass shooter's motives while the bodies were still warm. Recent developments leave me feeling vindicated in that assessment. Mike, is my skepticism of the rush to pronounce upon Aldrich's motivations justified? Well, you're never wrong as a journalist to not get ahead of the facts. And you're certainly you're never wrong as a real journalist. A true I'm just journalist, never wrong, not. Mike. I mean, let me just leave it back. <laughs> yeah, let's cut through all the qualifiers. Not even wrong. But you're never wrong to uh, not grandstand, which is what Ben Collins was doing. I was trying to unpack his point from the garments that he was so noisily rending. <laughs> but here is my problem with all of this. Are we now in a dynamic that if it turns out that this shooter was actually motivated by anti-queer or anti-drag queen animus, that one side is right and had the better side of the argument? Is it the case that if this individual's supposed binarism is actual and not just a legal ploy, which I suspect it might be, that that side will have egg on its face? No, I think we absolutely have to get out of this dynamic of looking at mass shootings, and I hope we could get to this, only certain select mass shootings as giving us vindication of what I've been saying all along. Life is not a Ryan Murphy TV drama. And for there to be horrible impulses in the world and just bad ideas, the proof of this isn't that, quote, people will get killed. And people have been killed. Obviously, they've been killed because of homophobia and they've been killed because of, of racism. And some of the mass shootings that have occurred, uh, you go right 
to the online published manifestos and you could tell that the motives of the shooter were exactly what Ben Collins feared they would be. But we are way too invested in a, see, I told you I was right, about things that you might have been right about. Things like our hatred of drag queen bingo is so dysfunctional as a society and can only have ill effects. And there have been people who've issued threats and uh, tried to plant bombs because drag queen shows were occurring. But it is just wrong. It is not useful to use these acts of madmen as a vindication for our priors for saying see i always told you this proves it because if in the one case it's not true does that mean that your assertion that we should maybe be a little kinder and more open to drag queens does that call into question that assertion it shouldn't so you shouldn't pin it on the act of a madman yeah i mean that that uh you know, I was going to come in a little hotter, but now um, Mike has encouraged me to temper my response to Jamie's opening um, because, yes, of course, these things are multifactorial and they only uh, show themselves over time unless there is, as you say, a manifesto. But I will take issue with the idea that uh, Collins is blaming, quote, conservatives for this mass murder. That's not what he says. I mean, in the part of the clip you didn't play, Jamie, Collins does nothing but his job putting the murders at Club Q in the context of these rapid fire recent events of uh, uh, anti-LGBTQ extremists carrying out and egging on a rampage of violence and violent threats towards schools, hospitals, libraries that they deem overly hospitable to gay and trans people. Um, I don't know if you followed this, but Boston Children's Hospital, where my grandfather worked, um, was um, hit with a hate campaign um, on an account with millions of followers. That account floridly lied that that hospital was removing the ovaries of girls. I hardly need to tell you this is bullshit, debunked over and over, but it led to threats to execute doctors and detonate bombs at the hospital that they ended up having to take seriously. Fortunately, no one's been hurt, but they've been hurt in other cases. And this is just one of the headlines that in that section, Colin cites, he's done this reporting. He's not talking about ordinary conservatives. He's talking about violent extremists who are actually being violent and threatening violence. And then there's Tucker Carlson. I don't know if he counts as an ordinary conservative, but you may have seen when he reported on the mass murder at Club Q, he gave pro forma condolences to the families and then lurched into his usual demented smears of LGBTQ people as groomers who are a threat to children. He had a nutcase guest named Jamie Mitchell. I don't know if you know this woman, but she is the head of something like called Gays Against Groomers. Um, And she said the tragedy that happened in Colorado Springs, so she was making the connection the other night, It was expected and predictable. We saw it coming from a mile away because LGBTQ people and their defenders are groomers. She also says, I don't think the violence is going to stop until we end this evil agenda that's attacking children. So it wasn't, it, it was hardly just Collins making this connection. But the point is, the Club Q massacre came into an atmosphere thick with extremism and anti-gay abuse, and it's well within Collins's wheelhouse to point this out without speculating on the motivation, just the context that this shooting happened in. Uh, you know, to say that anyone, I'll go further, Jamie, to say that anyone who questions the, quote, propriety of teaching gender theory to elementary school students has blood on their hands is to deliberately misunderstand 
Collins, who says nothing about teaching gender theory to elementary school students or that being some kind of part of a bloodbath and instead refers to actually violent extremists as the context for this mass murder. No, I mean, a lot of the criticism that's been directed has been not just at the nutters and the violent extremists. It's been at people who are raising, in my opinion, good faith objections to certain aspects of transgender ideology. Uh, it's not just conservatives, by the way. There's a lot of gender critical feminists. There's a lot of lesbians. There are a lot of people who don't like the idea that uh, children should be told that because they do not conform to certain gender stereotypes, that that means that they are the opposite sex. Well, Jamie Mitchell, Jamie Mitchell, a gay against groomers, would share that view. She would, but and she's also. I well, know that they're. Yeah, I don't. I, independently, yeah, can I finish? I don't. Yeah. The, the term groomer is really disgusting. I think we would agree on that, and should not be used in in uh, terms of this debate. So I totally disassociate myself with that organization, with this woman, uh, with anyone who would use that term uh, to describe gay people. It's it's abhorrent. But there's this conflation going on, which is that anyone who questions aspects of this radical ideology, and it is radical, and there are, and there are elements of it that are quite homophobic, because to tell people who are gender nonconforming, many of whom are gay, because all gay people are gender nonconforming, in the sense that they are attracted to people of the opposite sex, to tell kids, prepubescent kids, who haven't even gone through puberty yet, okay, to tell them that if they're experiencing any kind of, you know, uh, confusion about their gender, that this means that they are transgender, uh, which is preparing them to go on a path of medicalization um, and potential surgeries and hormones and all sorts of things. To be, to be teaching that to children, I think, is something that we should be able to have a good faith debate about, okay? And the I problem, do too, the problem and maybe is, we should another time, but what does this have to do with the killer who shot up a gay club because we because people like myself people like myself and other people who have these good faith objections are being conflated and are being grouped in with murderers and terrorists and people who threaten to bomb places there's a term that's been introduced that i've never heard before until a couple of weeks ago stochastic terrorism this is a new term that i've never heard which is basically saying that anyone who you know if, if you say critical things about a group that you are therefore responsible um, for violence that might erupt against them. It's basically a new way to legitimize censorship. And it's something that Ben Collins and a lot of his, a lot of his colleagues in this disinformation but business... But also being critical of, pre, of, of puberty blockers or of certain uh, educational trends is not... It has nothing to do with this murder. And no one is... I mean, Collins is the one you cited... Yeah. I don't know who the other progressives you are who are saying, oh, any dispute about puberty blockers is somehow uh, those people who dispute the worth of puberty blockers are to blame for this violence. Anyone making that connection is absurd. But that is the connection that you wanted to make because you want this somehow to be an attack on conservatives. It's, I get well, that. It's not, I shouldn't have, even, I shouldn't have used conservatives gate. in my intro because there's a lot of liberals. They're not speaking up about it. But believe me, I know because I have conversations with them. Liberals who are at serious unease about a lot of this transgender ideology that's being taught in schools. They're not saying it publicly. I just don't know what we're talking about this. I, I thought we were talking about a mass murder. How I heard Ben Collins' statement, you're either on one side or the other. You yes. either think that trans people... Deserve to live. Deserve which is to live. An absurd, right, right. It's an absurd straw man argument for him to present. Or you are on the side of dead bodies. And I heard that as saying, if you raise... 
objections about whether puberty blockers should be prescribed or gender-confirming surgeries should be performed on minors, you are on the wrong side of that question, of that choice. I mean, I did hear him clearly saying that. What he says is that he, are we too afraid to end up on Breitbart for pro-trans arguments so that we don't condemn anti-gay violence. Now, I don't, I'm not in that, don't find myself in that position in spite of the fact that my politics are pro-trans, so I don't know about that risk. But I've been criticized, and I do say plenty of things that Breitbart attacks me for. Um, but, um, but I think that, you know, someone in his position who right now, because of what he said, is being <laughs> blamed for, uh, you know, his seeming pro-trans argument that he thinks he should have he should have risked that blame and i think he was right to risk the this you know censoriousness from from uh, Jamie in order to make his point that this particular incredibly troubling massacre happens in the context of anti-gay sentiment. Well, Ben Collins takes no risk in making that point. Nor he does any, nor does to, any, this is a, yeah, kind of, no, no journalist is afraid of ending right, up on what right I think I think the dishonest <laughs> thing that Ben Collins is doing is that, is saying that people who are holding their tongue, people really want to be 100% pro-trans and come out with some sort of statement that WPATH, WPATH is wrong when it comes to gender confirming surgery, but they fear uh, approbation from the Breitbart crowd. That it's, is a dishonest It's the framing. opposite. It's the, opposite. It's the entire it's opposite. It's the opposite. In fact, when Michelle Goldberg, who wrote about this, wrote, and I, I just quote, you didn't know I did this. I snuck in her quote, which was the article, her op-ed was all about our craziness when it comes to objecting to drag queens. The, the, illness that has beset so many in our society when we look at this apps you know i would say mostly joyous but absolutely uh, unharmful expression right and come to see it as a thing of hate there was one sentence that she said where i believe there's legitimate debate over questions like puberty blockers or gender confirming surgeries and she did get that got pulled out and she did get assailed for saying that and she did get lumped in with you know the people who would kill gay people and that's what's going on it's not about uh someone being afraid of breitbart the one thing I was desperate to say is that there are certain mass shootings that we point to because, uh, depending on the context or even the motives of the killer, they tell us something terrible about society. But the mass shootings or regular shootings that we never talk about, and I could direct you to the mm-hmm. list, the mass shootings database, where mm-hmm. there were five killed in Colorado Springs. And if you go through it, there were four killed in Aurora, Colorado, in a quadruple murder-suicide. And there were five killed in Maryland. And there were four killed in Philadelphia. And this happens weekly. And they're almost always in minority communities. They're always, I think, I think almost 100% of the time, done because of the problem with guns. And it's just that the problem that those murders, the context that those murders point to, is not as, I don't know, interesting or different, or I would say doesn't have the easy enemy as a shooting like the Q Club. And I think that that is really showing us something horrible about our society. I don't, I mean, using this to score political points seems wrong. Using it, if this is Elliot Roger, the incel hating women, or this is Robert D. Bowers, who killed 11 at the Tree, Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. If if this is one of those cases where it is a hate crime, it is hate violence, I hope that we have the open-mindedness to see that as part of a context of broader 
anti-gay, anti-Semitic, anti, you know, misogynistic uh, sentiment. That's that's all I would want from reporters. I'll just note before we wrap this up that since Mix Aldrich uh, came out, so to speak, as non-binary, there's been radio silence from the media and progressives. So there's that. Uh, The politicization of everything is not going away, however. There's one area where that's acceptable, which is politics. Up next, we'll talk about Joe Biden potentially running for re-election. Welcome back to Not Even Mad. And I'm going to say we're going to politicize politics right now. So content warning for everyone. Or maybe I'll let uh, James Clyburn, the majority whip and Democratic kingmaker, do it for me. I want to see him run again. I have told him that. But that decision is up to him and his family. I think that if we learn anything in this election, uh, this November, it is this. That people love Joe Biden's approach and they are in love with his agenda. That's why we were able to defy all odds and do what we were able to do in defying uh, conventional wisdom. So I'm with Jim. It's hard to imagine, impossible to imagine to me, why any Democrat wouldn't want Joe Biden to run again. He is the incumbent. I could almost end my argument there, but I'll say also he was decisively voted in as president only two years ago. He's had bang up legislative accomplishments. He doesn't trip woke wires for voters who worry about those things. His party did better in the midterms than any in party in two decades. Okay, yes, he's old. I've written uh, I've written a couple of columns um, during the primary against geezers in politics because politics have always struck me as no country for old men. But maybe this is a country for old men. Hi, Chuck Grassley. Maybe elder statesman is what we need right now. Now, Biden's geezer vibe is evidently what people like about him. His gentleness, his his willingness as a father who's lost two children and a third to addiction to grieve with a country that has lost more than a million people to COVID. And did I mention he's the incumbent? Now, finally, approval polls. And to be honest, I don't understand them. Are they at all predictive? I feel like Mike might know. Um, They weren't in the midterms. And it just seems like we're a sulky, tetchy, disapproving country right now that's forgotten how to praise. I mean, all I can say is I heartily approve of Biden. I will vote for him. He should run. He can and will win. What about you, Mike? You hoping to recruit a fiery AOC or a feisty Pete Buttigieg, or do you think the Dems should stay the course with Sleepy Joe? Yeah, AOC. That's who I'm looking to recruit. She will be 35 in two months, I think, if if inaugurated. <laughs> what, is Ilan Omar? She's not running? Oh, no, she wasn't born in America. So I do think your list of uh, accomplishments of Biden was fairly weak tea, including he did better in the midterms than anyone in two decades. Yes, I mean, technically, George W. Bush in 2002, that was two decades. Uh, the Democrats lost the House. Uh, the Democrats lost more Senate races than they won. They outperformed. Was it because people love Joe Biden? No. Approval ratings. Yeah, it is true that someone in that approval rating range should probably expect to lose 30 seats and the Democrats only lost 10. So way to go Joe Biden or way to go party that was running against the specter of Trumpism. Ding, ding, ding. I'd put my money on that. But I just know he's not going to be a good campaigner because as president, you 
have to campaign, and he hasn't been a good campaigner so far. It's because of his age, and I don't blame him for that, and I don't think he's senile, but he's just not up to the task of fully embodying and owning the bully pulpit. And I think that it is up to him, but I think that he and the party could be making a bad mistake if they take to heart what you were saying about how all the uh, tailwinds are behind him and his candidacy. I would not look at the midterms and say, oh, we we really have nothing to worry about. Well, to your point, Mike, about him being a bad campaigner, he didn't have to campaign in 2020. He campaigned from his basement in Delaware for most of that election. Uh, So the next uh, 2024, he's going to, whoever the nominee is, is going to have to campaign and campaign hard across the country. And uh, I just think... You know, I have nothing against Joe Biden as a man. Uh, I'm not. I'm not a Biden hater. Uh, I think he's been a decent president. I guess he's just too old. He's just too old for the job. Uh, someone of his age should not be running. I mean, maybe if there was someone, you know, maybe there are people of that age who 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 could be up to it. But you just see it. It's wearing him down, and um, you reach a point in your life where you don't have the same mental capacity as someone younger. Uh, I think we've all witnessed that with elderly relatives, and I think we're all as a nation seeing that with Joe Biden. And in some sectors, I guess it's considered taboo to talk about this, but we really should be more open about this. There, there are things that people of you know a certain age don't don't do anymore. I mean, there are people once you reach a certain age, you you I don't I don't know if you have to in certain states, but you should have to reapply for a driver's license, right? I mean, there 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 are certain things that 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 people over the age of eighty um, don't do. And I think running for president should be one of them. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how he pulls off uh, campaigning. I mean, th- th- look, I don't disagree that he is muted. He's not the way that he was <laughs> the uh, first of 400 times he campaigned for president. You know, yes, he is 80. But look, Bernie Sanders is 81. Um, Nancy Pelosi is is stepping down as House Speaker at 82. But then we have Chuck Grassley, who ran again at 89 and won in Iowa. He goes so, to bed at eight. Chuck Grassley does. <laughs> I don't understand these big generations. I don't understand how they why they sit around and take up so much space forever. But that's what seems to be happening. And if we have uh, if we have Trump, who just announced he's running, uh, running against him, he'll be 78. You know, OK. Con, you know, converging on the age that Joe Biden um, is now, you know, so I don't know what to make of the age thing. I just think Joe, Joe Biden is a great president. He's the incumbent. Maybe they'll do some weekend at Bernie's thing where, you know, some more competent people or younger people around him uh, do most of the heavy lifting. I agree. Campaigning is rough. He, he got a break by virtual campaigning in um in uh, in 2020, and um, and maybe he'll be able to thread that particular needle again. Maybe you don't need to go out and shake hands um, or uh, li- or kiss babies anymore. The the most compelling argument for him running has been made to my ear by Liz Smith, who really emphasizes the advantages of incumbency and how foolish it would be to throw it away, yeah. especially without a really strong heir apparent in the wings. And I take it very seriously coming from her since she was Buttigieg's campaign director. So as I'm gaming this out, I would think that there are two strong arguments, not personal within the Biden family arguments, but two strong game theory type arguments against him not running. One is that the alternatives could be worse. And two is that the opponent could be 
Trump, which isn't to say that whoever we think of as worse alternatives might not be able to beat a Republican, which is something that you and I, Virginia, would like to see, but I don't think Jamie is is on board on that necessarily. And even if the opponent is Trump, it's not necessarily true that Biden could beat him again. And it's also not necessarily true that one of these uh, alternatives couldn't also beat him. But I do take it all into account. And that's what gives me a little bit of pause when I say, well, if it's Trump out there, we know Biden beat him once. I wouldn't want to throw away that the likelihood that Biden would beat him again. I mean, we've got something going on here, which is that all three of us have said that we approve of him as a president, that we like him as a president. I think Jamie went to pretty good. He's been a pretty good president. Mm. But I mean, none of us loathe him and uh, uh, the way that we loathe, say, Donald Trump. Um, so I think there's that says something in our three-person approval rating um, that might go into the mix. But in general, I just agree. No one throws away the incumbency. Well, Jamie, let me ask you this question. Would you, I know you did not vote for Donald Trump and I assume you voted for Joe Biden, but you're the, you're the one whose vote is in play. Not that I think Mm -hmm. you're typical of a swing voter, a guy who used to work the machinery lines in Janestown, Wisconsin. But uh, if it's say Ron DeSantis or some other acceptable Republican, would there be any Democrats on the horizon you see earning your vote? What Democrats are on the horizon? That's a, that's a problem that the party has. I don't see many. That's Democrats why I say horizon. we got to get. Some <laughs> it's not going to be. Yeah, it's not going to be Kamala. I mean, she's. If it's Kamala, I mean, let's be serious. Kamala, she's not, yeah. It's Kamala, whatever. How I about mean, Klobuchar? Gonna, I mean, you know, I I I might take a second look at her. Um, but, but I think this is the problem. There. Jared Polis, first gay president, Andy Brashear of Kentucky. I yeah. would actually. I'm. Very, I've been very impressed with Jared Polis since he was a congressman. Uh, and I, yeah, so, you know, this is, so yes, if there, if Jared Polis is in the race and if there are other governors, um, then yeah, then Joe Biden should step aside and make, make room for younger up and coming talent. I mean, particularly if the democratic party is trying to fashion itself as the party of the young, of the youth, then having, uh, you know, a gerontocracy, uh, it doesn't really fit much with the brand. Yeah, although there's been so much change. I mean, as Steve Bannon said, the the uh, the right wing is the counterculture now, and the Democrats seem to have a steadier hand on the tiller. I mean, George H.W. Bush and Joe Biden, you know, d- come across the same way to me. Um, just that steady sea captain, old man, I've seen it all uh, hand. And also they can navigate um, through their wisdom with um, with Congress in a way that, uh, you know, in a way that the Trumps of the world and the um, nutcases can't. I just love the idea of Jamie being torn between DeSantis and Polis. <laughs> How many? How many people are in that demographic? <laughs> Don't say gay and say nothing I but actually, gay. No, I actually think that would be a great matchup, and I think that that would actually be a close race. And I think I think a lot of voters would actually be more. more we're a very polarized country, obviously, but I think that a, a DeSantis polis race would actually bring important issues to the fore. You'd actually see issues being debated. It wouldn't be ad hominem. At least I hope it wouldn't be. At least not to the extent that the past two elections have been. Uh, and I think you would see a lot of independent voters in play between those two candidates. I, I like that, too. I like it a lot, too. I mean, come on. We're just I just like I just think we are not so much a polarized country. It's just a freaking gloomy country. Like we just can't say I approve of something to save our lives. Um, and uh, and I like hearing Jamie like two candidates. 
Well, hopefully the World Cup victory that's soon to come for America will be that uniting factor. (laughs) You want to take us to break? And when we return, cancel court. We're back with Not Even Mad. Oyvez, oyvez, cancel court is in session. Justices Kerchik, Heffernan, and Pesca presiding. All those who have been canceled might have been canceled or stand for the proposition that no one's ever canceled, it's all a myth, are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Today's litigant is the $10 billion piece of machinery described here. We're basically just sending this incredible instrument into the sky with the name of a homophobe on it. Homophobe in the sky keeps on turning, not just the worst journey song, but a damning description of the James Webb telescope. The namesake of that telescope was the second administrator of NASA who led the agency during many of the Apollo missions in the 60s. The allegation that you heard voiced there by Shanda Prescott Weinstein who is a cosmologist at the University of New Hampshire and the winner of the 2017 LGBT plus physicist acknowledgement of excellence award. That critique is that Webb participated in the lavender scare, a purge of gay and suspected gay government workers in the fifties and sixties. Prescott Weinstein and 1200 other scientists and space enthusiasts petitioned NASA to remove James Webb's name. They point out that he sat in on meetings where The purging of homosexuals was discussed during his time as undersecretary of state in the Truman administration. But beyond that, not much has been accurately documented about what Webb definitely did during the Lavender Scare. Until now, NASA came out with a new report, which, quote, finds no evidence that Webb was either a leader or proponent of firing government employees for their sexual orientation. Prescott Weinstein and others have not lessened their demand. Still, I mean, as we sit today, the James Webb Space Telescope is in the sky, still called that name. So what's really to debate? He's not canceled, right? Except that courts often grant cert to hear an issue that seems fairly open or closed, but the contemplation of which may lead to deeper insights or unveil some theretofore unarticulated principles. So with that orientation, I turn to Jamie Kerchik, who's referenced five times within NASA's report. What should we think about this 14,000-pound hunk of machinery that's sitting in court before us? Well, I should note that the report, uh, while it does cite my book, multiple times. It doesn't actually cite it in relation to the specific case of Webb, which is important because Webb, as you indicated, did not play any sort of significant role in the Lavender Scare. In the Truman administration, he was a mid-ranking bureaucrat in the State Department. And actually, if you read the report, which I think most of the people who are attacking Webb have not done, and they didn't do much research at all. What's interesting is that while he was at the State Department, his job was mainly to try to keep the State Department's files on their employees out of the hands of the congressional hmm. lavender hunters. It was basically kind of bureaucratic you know, uh, prerogative, which is not to say that the State Department wasn't itself kicking out gay people left and right, but his role, ironically, Webb, was really to sort of uh, keep the, the, the congressional lavender baiters at bay. And then when he was at NASA, um, he was the administrator, and... There were plenty of people who were dismissed from NASA 
for being gay. But those sorts of decisions were below his pay grade, obviously. He wasn't dealing with with personnel matters as the administrator of NASA. I mean, I'll go so far as to say, even if James James Webb had been involved in individual cases, um, I don't think that it it merits his name being taken off this telescope for the simple fact that it would not outweigh his enormous contributions to the space program. Um, and I also think that singling him out um, you know, if if James Webb were to be the face of government homophobia during the Lavender Scare, it would be a tragedy because the Lavender Scare was a government-wide policy that was implemented by every president from Harry Truman all the way through really to Bill Clinton, who lifted the ban on gay people receiving security clearances in 1995. It was a government-wide policy that was implemented by every administration from the president on down through cabinet secretaries, deputy undersecretaries of this and that across the, across the, the full uh, federal government. And to single out this one guy, you know, actually minimizes the real impact of the lavender scare that, that, that it had not just on individual gay people, but, but our country. And it was, it was a terrible cost that, 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 that was born. Um, and I think it actually minimizes the full impact of that to, to single out this one, you know, bureaucrat whose name we only know because he's he's on this this telescope. Uh, Jamie, thank you for also that primer or refresher on um on the lavender scare cuz this is your work and I recommend to listeners your book Secret City which treats gay Washington and these themes in depth. Um I my um argument with uh with Webb is um not that he was uh you know an architect of some kind of bigoted policies but that he's not a scientist. And that was the problem when he was first chosen he's a lawyer, he's an administrator. Um, he does a lot of paperwork, but, uh, you know, I just heard, heard in, in my favorite place, Taiwan, the, uh, the CEOs of, uh, chip manufacturing companies talking about why America couldn't get its chip shit together. Um, given that we had created such a miraculous magisterial space program. And, you know, I was reminded that scientists are in awe of the things that the, the telescope itself has, has discovered, as all, are we all. And I would love to see the name of an astrophysicist on this miraculous telescope. Um, Alyssa Quintana, uh, a fa- an astrophysicist at, at NASA, discovered the first Earth-sized planet beyond our solar system. Why not give it to her? If it has to be a white dude for continuity, Mark Clampin's prime uh, prime directive as a scientist at NASA is to discover if we're alone. I mean, that's pretty cool and more inspiring than Webb's facility with paperwork. Anyway, uh, of course, if he didn't gun for the lavender scare, he was merely president meetings. There's absolutely nothing to discuss here. He uh, he shouldn't be canceled. There should not be a cloud around him. This was a very thorough uh, deep dive into something like eighty thousand documents that that NASA poured over to be sure that he he wasn't the person he'd been made out to be. I just hope that his reputation has been uh, corrected. Um, and I also hope that the major damage done to the beautiful telescope uh, by a micrometeoroid um, is also somehow corrected. Um, I guess it's kind of grounding to find out that real damage is still more consequential to telescopes than reputational damage. So I do think that there is there are some costs, and it's not to the reputation, which is an ineffable quality to a dead guy. It's to the process by which 
um, these protesters got a lot of attention and a lot of news reports and a lot of credence and credibility, not by lying, but just by getting things wrong, either through sloppy research, which is pretty bad considering that many of them are scientists. And in their field, I don't want to imply that Shonda Prescott-Weinstein is anything other than an excellent scientist, but her, and it wasn't just her, 1,200 people who signed this, and there was a lot of momentum behind this. They just did shoddy, shoddy work. And you could read articles like uh, in Forbes magazine, you could read Matthew Francis, who wrote early on when momentum was uh, uh, building up for taking Webb's name off the telescope. The problem with naming observatories for bigots. And in a magazine called Them, James Factora wrote an article, we regret to inform you that the new NASA telescope is named after a raging homophobe. And when they were wrong, and when they were proved wrong, no one said they're wrong in something like Mm -hmm. the scientific Mm -hmm. method where you test hypotheses has to reveal truths. Mm -hmm. That wasn't embraced. What was embraced is, oh, let's just shift the argument and let's change things like, okay, so maybe he wasn't a bigot per se, but, and one of the things that Prescott Weinstein said is there's no record of him choosing to stand up for the humanity of those being persecuted. Well, I think as Jamie implies, at least in his way, in his functionary bureaucrat way, and by the way, I want to stand up for bureaucrats. Without good bureaucrats, the good scientists (laughs) will never be heard from. But in his way, it did seem like he did slow walk um, some of the elements of the Lavender Scare. Give him credit. Also give him credit. Big champion of African-Americans in the space program. A very esteemed and famous African-American astrophysicist, Hakeem Olaf. Yushay did a really good debunking of the charges against Webb, and he was just brushed off with, yeah, but goalposts were ever-changing. There was no way to falsify the assertion that James Webb was somehow involved in this horrible aspect of history, mm-hmm. and isn't it sad that we're putting down people by get, putting his name on a telescope? The whole thing's dispiriting, if not a cancellation. I, I totally, I totally well, agree. I would just add just one, one little thing. What do, yeah, and you know, I, I, I'm going to put on my historian's cap and I'm going to enlighten some of these people who say James Webb was a raging bigot and a homophobe. Guess what? 99.9% of Americans in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and maybe even longer, held views about gay people that we would consider to be homophobic. Um, that's just so the way it was. What? So what's the implication then? That they, none of them should be honored or don't, don't think that we'd have been in that 0.1%? Well, here's where I think this is actually going. Uh, you know, I'm not going to. I wouldn't be surprised if in 20 to 25 years we don't have a Democratic Party candidate who supports taking George Washington and Thomas Jefferson's name off of everything, because there is a growing chorus for that on the left, and I think it's only going to gather steam as these concepts are taught in schools and children are indoctrinated in these beliefs, in the belief that you know if someone held views in the 19th or 18th century that we don't consider enlightened by contemporary standards, they're, 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 that their entire contributions should be erased. That is a view that is held by wide swaths of people on the left and in the academy and in these activist but organizations. But not by NASA. So I mean, that's a, a rebuttal. So shouldn't that be more of a uh, telescope half full thing that we're saying that an <laughs> official government Sure, but I'm just saying there is, there is a lot, well, there is a logic to these arguments that these people are making. I think it's a crazy one. And it's thankfully not shared by the vast majority of the country now. But I can't say with with you know certainty that in the future we won't be seeing um, larger groups of people arguing for 
things that now would seem crazy, right? To take uh, Abraham Lincoln's name off of a public high school somewhere. Most of us shook our heads at that and thought it was outrageous. I don't think that that's going to seem outrageous to to the younger generation that's going to be ruling us. Can I go back to your point about uh, 99% of us held unsavory or just or anti-gay views? Certainly. And I'm among them. But this particular, um, this particular... I wasn't referring to you. I'm talking about people in the 40s and 50s. No, no, no. I know. I I know. But I want to point out how uh, during the Cold War, which, you know, I I lived for the first, uh, you know, almost 20 years of my life. I I did hold a view that that you make sense of in your book that I find very interesting, which is there's nothing intrinsically wrong with being gay, but you're more blackmailable if you're gay. So right, it's other right. people that could judge you for this. And so yes. that's why you're not a good member of the State Department. And that sure. is exactly the kind of homophobia I grew up with, which is like, oh, knock yourselves out. But, you know, you are vulnerable to this kind of blackmail. And let's face it. And your point in the book about that being why we we make these things not secrets anymore, so they're no longer hot um, right. and blackmailable. Um, is is the right thing instead of saying that's the way the world works? Yeah. So again, I want to thank you for calling that to my attention, and also remind everyone that this was a, such a common belief um, about the way the State Department and the CIA should be organized um, that uh, that to participate in it was just to participate in the most bullseye common discourse. Exactly. All right. Yes. Well, I do think that we got something out of it. I don't know that the uh, rubric of cancellation is the best to apply, but I learned something. Let us, however, make our judgments. The James Webb Space Telescope has James Webb, not the telescope, but the reputation of the man been canceled. I say no. What say you, Justice Heffernan? Uh, I think he's been redeemed and possibly we should cancel people who gun for cancellations without the facts. I think they should be counseled and re and perhaps uh, <laughs> better educated. But <laughs> Justice Justice Kerchuk, what say you? Yeah, I think we should cancel the cancelers. <laughs> uh, 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 <laughs> See, it's, a, it's a very meta meta court. We're, yeah, we're really yeah. thinking yes. in Milky Way yes. terms now. <laughs> I, ju- I just know if I'm going to cancel anyone, it's the Hubble Space Telescope. We thought that thing was good, but it's shit. James Webb Space Telescope, not canceled. So say us one, so say us all. All judgment of cancel court are binding precedent until which time of reconsideration or revelation of bad takes, bad tweets, punching down, fuzzy imagery from the Horsehead Nebula. On this date of November 30th, 2022, it is so ordered. And now is a section of the show where we discuss what really grinds our gears, what gets our goats, and we call this the Goat Grinder segment. Jamie, would you like to... Oh, there he is. There he is. Oh, Jesus. Oh, sorry, Goat. Jamie, would you like to lead us off? Well, this episode of Not Even Mad has not been gay enough, so I thought I would uh, enlighten you all uh, reading about Donald Trump's latest dinner party this young man named Nick Fuentes, who is a Nazi, a fascist, and an incel. And I was just looking him up, and I saw a couple of months ago he was talking very proudly about his inceldom. And he declared that dating women is gay. Having sex with women is gay. <laughs> I'm just going to pause. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, all I know is that Nick Fuentes needs some counseling. Uh, speaking of counseling, so <laughs> yeah, I'll go. I'll go this time. So 
It is a constant feature of autocorrect, which is auto-incorrect. It happens without fail, Mm -hmm. only it always fails. When I attempt to text the word well, it autocorrects to wheel. Uh, We will. Wheel. And this is a horror for me, not because <laughs> not because people have a 180 degree idea of what I tried to mean, but because every time I'm writing well, it's I've been thinking about this. It's to signal it's a tonal signifier that I'm about to engage in light sarcasm. And all I hope to accomplish from that interaction on behalf of the recipient of the text is a little bit of a chuckle because I'm trying to clear a little rhetorical space, trying to be a little faux serious and say, well, you do realize. Let me give you an example. Someone might text me, I don't understand what has happened to Rudy Giuliani. And I could respond, he is deranged. But the recipient might not know, oh, that's Mike's honest assessment. Or is Mike saying, he is deranged. But if I were to write, well, he is deranged, it does a lot of work. It does a lot of work in setting the tone. Mm-hmm. When that is instead, wheel, he's deranged, it means nothing. It doesn't exactly trip up the recipient. It just takes my attempt at subtlety, my sense of an implied community where we're all into the joke and creates an apostrophe and creates you know, an apocalypse of meaning. You, you're, you're such a rhythmic talker and writer, Mike. <laughs> I can imagine that absolutely getting your goat. And um, it also makes you sound a little deranged, honestly. Yeah. Will, you happen to be right there. <laughs> Virginia, what's your goat grinder? Yes. My goat grinder is the tough world of podcasting. Mike, when you and I started, it felt like cable access TV for audio. There was well, I'm selling it short a little bit, but there was one human yammering on and a microphone and a producer to cut out your ums. At least that's how I remember it. But now the world is so crowded with podcast agents and formulas for how to make shows and pressure to find dead bodies uh, so you can investigate their cold cases. Um, <laughs> the other day, a uh, friend of mine who lives on a farm sent me a photograph of some bones she had turned up in her yard. And both of us had the thought, we have a podcast here. They were deer bones. So I'm going to spare you the uh, 12 episode podcast about who shot this deer and how it died. But um, I love working with you guys. And also I love these awesome listeners who match wits with us and each other online. But podcasting such a cold, hard world. So that's my current goat grinder. Let us leave the goats to grind themselves. <laughs> Not Even Mad is a Peachfish Project. The show is produced by Joel Patterson. The COO of Peachfish Projects is Michelle Pesca. Our theme songs by Max Kerman. Content designed by Big Yellow Taxi Advertising by Libsyn Advertisecast. Please email us at notevenmad at peachfishprojects.com. Check out the hashtag notevenmad on Twitter. Virginia Heffernan has a column in Wired that offers a close reading of the most influential magazine article in history, cramming more components into integrated circuits, 1965 by Gordon Moore's Law Moore. Yeah, that's his nickname. Wasn't his nickname before (laughs) he invented the law, but it's his nickname now. James Kerchick's Secret City was named one of the top 100 notable books of the year by the New York Times. Well-deserved. Hear, hear. And tune in to The Gist, where you'll hear John Farrell author of Ted Kennedy say, uh, In the Me Too era, that would have ended two careers. 
Absolutely, no, no doubt about it. And there were, you know, there were other incidents like that. Who was the other life who would be destroyed? You'll have to tune in for that. He was also a senator. Please subscribe to Not Even Mad wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, give us a nice review or a harsh but accurate review. We would love to hear what you think. Until next time, we're not necessarily saying we're right. We're definitely not saying you're right, but we are not even mad. Thank you.